Anika Rana, our next guest, grew up on a farm in Pakistan and spent the long, hot summers reading her grandfather's collection of Reader's Digests from the 1950s and 60s with articles like, I married an airplane, <laughs> and how to be a failure. <laughs> on eBay, those editions are now worth over $100. She wishes she had kept the collection. When she was 16, she started writing a novel and then put it aside because she thought she needed to experience life before writing it. 30 years later, she realized she'd better write one before her experiences became memories that she could no longer remember. Annika's debut novel, Wild Boar in the Cane Field, is a celebration of the rural women of Pakistan. She has published essays on gender and education. Her next book, Tales of Many Nations, A Summer in Pakistan, is a collection of personal essays. Please welcome Annika. Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Kaplan, everyone, for being here. So today was very hot, surprisingly hot for the Bay Area. And it was very similar to a summer in Pakistan. So I think it was very adequate that you would have that, that heat today. Um, and what I'd like to do today is take you to Pakistan and show you a glimpse of the village life that I have written about. The story that I'm going to read from is a story of Tara, um, who's a little girl who's found on a train covered in flies uh, by two women, Safia, the landowner, and her maidservant, Paga. And when I was trying to choose uh, a section to read, I thought, how could I make the appropriate choice? And so this is what I did. I looked at my table of contents. And the way I've divided Tara's story is into five sections. Um, the early, and these sections are based on the five prayers in, uh, for Muslims. The early morning prayer is before sunrise. The mid-afternoon prayer is the time of necessity. The late afternoon prayer is when it takes six miles um, for someone to walk um, till the sun sets, and that time is called six miles left. The evening prayer is the time when the sun is 12 degrees below the horizon. And so I decided I would read about the time when the, the sun is 12 degrees below the horizon, because we're around about the end of that prayer time. The last prayer of the day is when the red thread disappears. And in Tara's story, you will read about what happens to her and what has happened to her through the eyes of the flies that have found, that have protected her throughout her life, throughout her short life. So in the scene that I'm going to read, it's a short scene, but it's one of my favorite scenes. Tara is now about 17 and she's expecting a baby. And she, is she has traveled uh, far from the village uh, with Pagna, who is, has joined her, to go and meet the midwife. And they come to the midwife's house, and the midwife lives a slightly different life than Tara and Pagna and Safiya have lived. And um, what Tara sees here is a midwife with two little kids, 
and um, Bhagan is adamant that um, Tara should get to see the Mariam flower. Okay, and so when I was doing research for this story, this was what really fascinated me. It's a flower that is used in Pakistan, in some Middle Eastern countries, where when uh, a woman is about to give birth, it's a flower that is put in water, and it has quite a few medicinal properties, but one is that it calms a woman down as she's about to give birth. And so in this, um, when uh, Paga comes to meet uh, the midwife, she decides, uh, she, she forces the midwife to show Tara the, the flower of Mariam. So we're in, we're in the midwife's house, and this is the scene. The children, the two children, have just had a quarrel, and um, Tara is lying on a chatpai in this modest little house of the midwife. And we're listening to the story from, Tara, from Tara's perspective. I looked at the girl. She was smiling. Even at, a even at such a young age, she had learned how to get her way, to get her mother's sympathy. But the midwife knew her daughter too, and her tone changed as she addressed her. And you, I've told you to listen to your brother. Respect him. Now go. Let me take care of this woman. Is her baby coming out? The girl's voice reminded me of Maria's when I had cared for her at that age. But she was not as innocent. She was trying to charm her mother before she left the room to be with her brother again. Not yet, her mother responded. She has time. Are you going to show her the flower magic? Her daughter smiled. The little girl knew how to win her mother back. The midwife stroked her daughter's hair and smiled at her. Go, get me the earthen bowl and fill it with water at the pump. The little girl rushed out and her brother followed her. He seemed to have forgotten his original anger and wanted to join in on the fun of the magical flower. This interaction between a mother and her child was entirely different what, from what I had experienced or seen with Pagan or Janat, and it pleased me. I would admonish my children like this, and then I would hug them and make them laugh, like the two laughing at the hand pump outside. I could see the children at play from where I lay. The little boy pumped energetically, and his sister stood close to the stream, barely able to hold the bowl as water splashed everywhere. Her brother, noticing it was too heavy for his sister to carry, took the bowl from her hands and brought it to the doorstep. He stood there, knowing not to cross over it into the room where I lay on the charpai, and his mother took the bowl from him. She placed the shriveled plant into the bowl. Nothing happened. The midwife sensed my impatience. It takes time. Keep looking at the plant. I'm not sure how long it took, but I could hear Pagan's heavy breathing in the background as each bud of the flower unfurled, spreading the twig into a fully blossomed plant. I might even have dozed off for a while, but I was awoken by the midwife explaining what had happened. You see, the flower will call to your body to open up, to release the new life. The pain will reduce and become a sweet pleasure when you see your baby for the first time. She 
She touched my stomach again and announced, You see, even your baby has relaxed as you watch the flower bloom. Thank you. Welcome to Story is a Thing. I'm Dara Noblock, and I want to welcome you tonight. Story is a Thing is a long-standing tradition here at Kepler's, and it's an opportunity for us to bring local emerging writers together with established writers and introduce them to you, our community. So thanks for being here. If you want to take a moment to turn off your cell phones while you do that, I'll tell you a little bit about Kepler's Literary Foundation. Uh, Kepler's Literary Foundation um, is a cultural institution. Um, we've been, uh, well, I'll back up a little bit. Kepler's, um, as you know, has been um, an institution on the peninsula for decades. And at this point, uh, Kepler's um, is two entities. We have Kepler's, the iconic independent bookstore, as well as um, Kepler's Literary Foundation. We're a 501c3 nonprofit arts and literary organization. And um, we, Kepler's um, has been a cultural institution on the peninsula for decades. Um, and we offer a wide range of programs for youth and adults. We bring in writers, artists, authors, and um, we tackle topics such as news, current events, politics, and much more. Uh, we, um, in producing our 200 events, we do many of them here in the store. We um, also do some in large venues in Silicon Valley, as well as in the schools. Uh, we have a groundbreaking program in the schools. We go into underserviced schools in East Palo Alto, and we bring a notable author in and introduce them to students, um, which is a great um, opportunity to inspire reading and writing in students. And um, all said and done, we. Um, since the program started, we've donated uh, 2,500 books to youth and about $40,000 um, worth of books. So um, you can see we're very um, dependent upon our community for support, so we appreciate you coming to these events, telling your friends about these events, and um, donating when you can. So that's just a little bit about us, and without further ado, we'll get on with Story is a Thing and introduce our... Um, our authors for this evening. We um, have one author who's on your program that is ill, and so she won't be here with us, Peg Alfred Purcell. Um, but we'll just uh, follow along in the order that you see on your program. And I'll start first with Carol Bumpus. Um, when Carol Bumpus, our, uh, our first guest, explains where she's from, she would tell you that some people claim to hail from the Midwest then confessed to having come from Ohio. She claims to have been raised in the mid, just the mid. She was raised in Kearney, Nebraska, where one of their claims to fame, other than being on the Oregon Trail, was that they had an old dance hall named 1733 Ballroom. It was exactly 1733 miles to Boston and exactly 1733 miles to San Francisco. So she's definitely from the mid. Um, uh, another fun fact uh, from Carol in order to complete research for her first historical novel based on a French woman who lived through World War II, Carol took a position as a war correspondent to travel with and report on U.S. World War II veterans while they were on their 65th and 70th anniversaries of the landing on the southern beaches of France. She reported each day on the literally thousands of French people who came out to thank the small contingent 
of elderly U.S. soldiers as they traveled through the 40 villages that they had liberated all those years before. We will never forget was the French motto. We will never forget the gift of liberty you gave to us French people. Parades, festivals, dinners, more wine than they had a right to drink were provided in great celebration and in honor of the Allied veterans. It was one of the finest moments Carol has witnessed in all of her life. She began writing about food and travel when she stumbled upon the amazing stories of women in war in France. Her historical novel, A Cup of Redemption, was published in October of 2014, and her unique companion cookbook, Recipes for Redemption, a companion cookbook to A Cup of Redemption, was released in August of 2015, both by She Writes Press. Please welcome Carol to the stage. Yes, I'm from the mid. Um, she didn't mention, but I am going to be reading from my newest book, which is part of a series, Searching for Families and Traditions at the French Table. But first I want to say thank you to Kepler's, because Kepler's was the one that actually had my book launch when I uh, came out with A Cup of Redemption. And I had a monumental um, welcoming here, and this is home. This is home, and so thank you so much, Kepler's. So um, again, uh, this is Searching for Family and Traditions at the French Table, book one. This is part of a new series that I am writing, and it's the Savoring the Old Ways. And it's really about going into the family's homes in France, and it will be also in Italy, and finding out what's um, precious to them as far as their food and their traditions, and always there was a link to World War II. That's why I did this extra traveling to, um, with, the, with the veterans, which was just the most amazing experience. But I'm going to start out with um, kind of the introduction to, so we start out in Paris. And this is a memoir. So I'm actually with my husband and my good friend, Josiane, who is French. And she is taking me to all of these places that she wants me to learn about how to cook French. And so this is what, what this is about. We're going to go, and she's going to teach me about French cooking. And so it was her mother that I had written the historical novel about. Her mother was supposed to be with us on this trip, but had unfortunately passed away just not too long before this trip took place. So we're doing this in her honor. And the first place we start is Paris, then we go into the Champagne region, we go into the Alsace, then come back and go into the Lorraine and end up back in Paris. The second book that will come out in a year starts in Paris and goes into the um, western regions of France and down into the Auvergne. So stay tuned. So anyway, we're in Rennes, and um, what I, I don't do French. I'm not good at French. I try to attempt it, and I, I ruin it. And yet, if I'm supposed to say the word Rennes Cathedral, they say, okay, you hug it from the back of your throat. Rennes, you know, kind of like that. So um, I won't spit on you. I will just say um, that we were in Rennes, and we're heading to out into the countryside. So after our tour of the Rennes Cathedral, we raced back to the car. Rain was still expected, and clouds swirled around us like impending doom. 
Josie Ann's cell phone rang as we climbed into the car. It was Jean-Claude, her cousin, wondering where on earth we had disappeared. With much giggling and an apology, Josie Ann completed the call. We were expected in Ben Noir. Jean-Claude is preparing your very first culinary lesson and already you were late, she giggled. We needed to get a move on. We motored through Rennes and passed some of the great champagne houses, Rignard, Pomery, Piper Heidsick, then headed east into the countryside. Fields of cropped grapevines covered the gently rolling hillside like a monochromatic patchwork quilt, brown upon brown. It was too early in the season to see any bright green shoots of springtime, and the wind swept a regular tattoo against the car. I could understand why none had emerged. Half an hour later, we arrived in Benoit, a bedroom and farming community next to Rennes. We pulled up to a crisp, clean, and charming white house with brown shutters flung open as if in greeting. An open window emitted a savory and tantalizing aroma. We entered with a flourish as Josiane profusely apologized to Jean-Claude for our late, late arrival. We learned that it's a good thing to send her in ahead as an emissary because no one stays angry with Josiane for long. There were kisses and greetings all around, with little dogs yapping at our intrusion, three or four items, I'm assuming, and we were finally introduced to Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude is Josiane's favorite cousin. He grew up only four doors away from her in Pien, in the Lorraine. Their fathers were brothers, and Jean-Claude and Josiane grew up like brother and sister. After kissing me on each cheek and shaking Wynne's hand, he spoke the few bits of English he knew and welcomed us into his home with a sweep of his arm. Jean-Claude was soft-spoken with a quick smile. A crinkle formed about his gray-blue eyes, and he sported a neat mustache that matched his dark blonde hair. He wore a plaid sport shirt, dark green slacks, with a fluff of white flower gracing his front. I didn't know what Josiane had told Jean-Claude and Martine about why we were visiting for the weekend, but whatever had been said, they were gracious and eager to please. Did I mention they spoke little English and we spoke only restaurant French? Oh, challenges were in the offing. Thank goodness for our translator, Josiane. But the atmosphere was immediately one of a party. So while Wynne transferred our suitcases upstairs, I tossed down my coat and bag, grabbed pen and paper, and headed into the kitchen. I was about to learn my very first traditional French family dish, tortellini with spinach filling and bolognese sauce, a family specialty. Jean-Claude had been busy preparing the pasta dough for my cooking lesson, and the dough was resting. Several pots of pasta sauce were bubbling wildly on the stove in the kitchen the source of the piquant fragrance wafting through the house. He was excited to teach me one of his very favorite recipes. That's why you're visiting, Nespa. I confess, I'm a little surprised that my very first French cooking class would be, well, Italian. But Jean-Claude explained that in France, all noodles are called pasta. And this was a famous tortellini recipe he had learned as a child from his mother who had learned it from the next door Italian neighbor in Pien. Our community, and this is very important, our community, he said, was made up of people from many nationalities that had come to work in the iron mines at the end of World War II. Immigrants, migrants, all coming together. Our family was fortunate to be introduced to the food and the cultures of the Italians, Germans, Polish, and people from other provinces of France, plus the North Africans, who brought us couscous and merguez sausages, 
oh, we were so able to exchange many international recipes. Actually, they told me that they didn't realize that those foods were not French until after they had moved away from home. All food in a French home was considered French. Perfect, I said, this is exactly why I'm here. But first, the pasta class. It was clear Jean-Claude had prepared this dish often, for after he donned his apron, his movements were set. He had a good rhythm going. Into the kitchen he went, and back into the dining room he returned, where he immediately set about tossing flour wildly onto a clean plastic tablecloth that covered the dining room table. Martine, his wife, delivered the bowl of dough, and then Jean-Claude twisted a small bit of dough out from underneath the cloth, then quickly covered the bowl again. He patted out the dough, just enough to fit into the gleaming silver pasta maker attached to the side of the table, and the orchestration began. The, floor, the flour was flung right down in the center of the table. A three-foot ribbon of dough, which he cranked mightily out of the little machine, snaked its way along the board. And, as if on cue, Martine returned with the spinach filling. Like a synchronized team, they worked a fluff of flour here, a flick of the doughy ribbon there, a cutting of four-inch squares, fluff of spinach filling there, a folding of each square, and a pinching of the edges just to secure the mixture, and voila! Nothing to it, he says. Only 30 minutes tops. Throwing his flower-coated apron into the kitchen, he shifted into his role as host. He moved into the living room, an extension of the dining area, where we had just witnessed a culinary art performance, and where a crackling fire in the stone fireplace gave a room a welcoming warmth and glow. Jean-Claude popped the cork on one of many bottles of champagne, poured five flutes of bubbly essence, and said, two new friends. So this was the beginning of our first night of this particular wonderful tour. And we're going from house to house to house. But this night, we spent probably oh, three or four hours having dinner at their table. And then, as they proceeded, and we've gone through now several bottles of champagne, sauterne with the pâté de foie gras, uh, ruby red bordeaux with the pasta, and oh my gosh, so much more. But then, nearing the end, I think it was near midnight, Speaking of Mirabelle plums, he said. Nobody had been, but he was then. Jean-Claude said, returning to his seat, and he continued on as if there had been no break in discussion. I have some eau de vie, Mirabelle, he said. Um, year 1980. I'll give Winston a taste. Oh, look here, I haven't even opened the bottle yet. Winston, Josiane said. This liqueur was made by my father when he, and he was the last person in our family to hold the license which authorized him to distill his own alcohol. The license was originally given to a family from the French government and was handed down from father to the oldest son. But a new law has put that end to its, this right. Jean-Claude, is that the last bottle of our, that my father made? An odd smile flitted across her lips. Jean-Claude let out a gay puff. Oh, I don't know. Heavens, I have no idea. I looked from Josiane to Jean-Claude and back again. Was he opening the very last bottle of the literal fruits of Monsieur Zabé's labor for our unsophisticated tastes? No other explanation seemed to be forthcoming. I changed tacks. Jean-Claude placed a small shot glass of this distinctive eau de before Wynne and gave me a thimble-sized glass with an extra-large sugar cube. Men can handle this, he said, but women simply dip the sugar cube into the liqueur and suck the essence from it. I did as he, was, as he suggested. I dipped and sucked, while my husband um, sipped, 
Well, I can tell you the liqueur burned the hairs right out of my nose, and I'm quite certain it erased a number of brain cells from the positive column of my brain. As Winston and I tried to catch our collective breath, the other three sat gleefully observing us. Knock back a stiff one. Is this a secret way to diminish the number of Americans who visit France, I asked. Oh, they laughed. It was then that we noticed no one else was sampling this special digestive. So, where are your glasses of eau de vie? When asked, Jean-Claude leaned way back in his chair and he stretched and he said, Myself, I never touch this stuff. <laughs> That's it. Our next guest is Jerry Berger. Uh, Jerry was a professor of psychology at Santa Clara University for 34 years. He's probably best remembered by his students for the mind reading show he performed the first day of his research methods class. After a series of demonstrations where he told students what, a famous, per what famous person they were thinking of, which word they had picked at random out of a book, which card they had picked from a deck and other mind reading acts, he explained that these were all tricks and not valid scientific tests. Nonetheless, to his regret, a large number of his students still believe that he has ESP. <laughs> Jerry is also listed in the Internet Movie Database, IMDb, as an actor. His one and only role was in a documentary where he played himself. <laughs> Jerry is an internationally recognized expert on the psychological processes that contribute to inhumane acts like atrocities and genocide. His research has been featured in ABC News Primetime and a Discovery Channel documentary. His nonfiction book, Returning Home, Reconnecting with Our Childhood, explores the emotional attachments people develop with their childhood home. The Shadows of 1915 is his first novel. Please welcome Jerry. Thank you all for coming, and thanks to Kepler's and all the people who helped to organize this event. It is amazing to see the turnout. I, I'm very thrilled. The book is called The Shadows of 1915. It's a novel. Uh, 1915 refers to the 1915 Armenian Genocide, uh, in which uh, at least a million, probably a million and a half Armenians were murdered. The, uh, the men were rounded up, able-bodied men rounded up and shot. The women, the children, the elderly were marched out into the desert and left to die. My story takes place actually in 1953 in Central California uh, with the Armenian community who lives there one generation removed from the genocide. And the title, The Shadows of 1915, uh, is, uh, is apt because everything that happens to the characters in the book uh, has, an, is, is all, uh, has it, is impacted by what happened in Armenia in 1915. Um, I felt it necessary uh, to include a scene, one scene in the book from 1915, so that the reader could get a good idea of the horror and, and how horrible things were uh, it, during those times. 
And so um, what I'm going to read to you is the first part of that one scene. It is the uh, experience of one young woman as she was victim uh, to this genocide. <clears throat> Their feet, swollen and blistered from three days of walking, pushed forward on the dry soil, sending up clouds of dust to sting their eyes and coat their skin with reddish-brown dirt. Tarvez kept one hand over her baby's eyes. The other held her daughter tightly to her chest despite the heat. Only her child, she reminded herself. Above all else, she must protect Bartuli. More than a thousand people from Rivillette had started the march. The caravan had stretched for more than a mile, slump-shouldered women and children and a few frail men moving in step through the expansive Armenian grasslands under an immense sky. Some of the women pushed wooden carts. A few of the wealthier families used donkeys to transport their belongings. But most carried their possessions in the pockets of their overdresses and in cloth sacks strapped across their backs. Turkish gendarmes in tattered and stained uniforms rode on horseback at both ends of the procession. The gendarmes led them away from the main roads to craggy trails marked by water-carved furrows and scattered boulders. The vast openness of the land was unfamiliar to Tarvez, who had traveled outside her village only twice in her 22 years, both trips to see her relatives who lived in the higher lands to the east. The first few days, the caravan had passed stands of oaks, an occasional pomegranate tree, and patches of purple rhododendrons that reminded Tarvez of her flowers outside her home. But now, she could see only a few trees scattered across the horizon, and they had passed no other travelers all morning. At midday, Annie Gergarian, 71 years old last Christmas, dropped to her knees. Bring water, someone called. She must have shade, another woman said, glancing upward. The morning clouds had given way to a penetrating sun. This is too much for an old woman. Razmui Organian cupped her mother's elbow. Mir, we must continue. But Anig only lowered her shoulders and shifted her weight until she appeared to be kneeling in prayer. The gendarme was upon them at once. The Turk cracked his whip from atop his horse and ordered the women to continue. Razmui tugged on her mother's arm, pleading with her to stand, but the old woman only lowered her chin. I will join you later, Anig said, her eyes facing the ground, when I have a chance to rest. That evening, after a dinner of flatbread and salted lamb, Tarvez and her cousin Sona arranged their possessions behind a small stand of trees. The trees will protect us from the night winds, Sona said. Tarvez raked the dry soil with her fingers, then ground the broken clumps with her knuckles until the earth was reduced to a soft powder. She removed the shawl from around her head and laid it upon the surface. Sona used the edge of her palm to smooth the cloth from the center outward until it resembled the bed the children slept in at home. Tarvez laid her child on the white cotton shawl 
and Sona placed her own set behind, beside Bartui. Erakel had been born two weeks before Tarvez's daughter. To thwart the evil spirits, the two women had spent most of their pregnancies together. The Alk, the family elders had reasoned, would not take an unborn baby as long as another woman with child was nearby. And so Sona and Tarvis had worked the same chores throughout the winter and spring. The cousins often stood side by side while tending goats and sheep and comparing the changes in their bodies. Both godmothers had correctly predicted a boy for Sona and a girl for Tarvez. To Tarvez, it was almost as if Erichel were her own child. She had even nursed the boy for several days when Sona was bedridden with fever. Razmui Organian was among the group who shared a fire with the cousins that night. She spent much of the meal staring down the road in the direction where her mother had stopped to rest. Mir will be here soon, Razmui said as the women prepared to sleep. She leaned against a large boulder, a location that allowed an open view of the moonlit road. I've saved her some supper. She will be hungry. Tarvez and Sona positioned themselves on either side of their babies. Sona fell asleep instantly, while Tarvez pressed her nose and mouth against Bartui's cheek and hummed a soft lullaby to her already sleeping child. Tarvez was afraid to close her eyes. She survived the days by concentrating on her daughter, clinging to the belief that if she protected Vartui, God would protect the rest of her family and her people. But at night, when the baby was asleep and the clamor of the day faded, the thoughts she feared most made themselves known. How much longer must they travel? What would her home look like when they returned? And what had happened to her husband? She began to doze, but her sleep was invaded by the image of a hundred Turkish soldiers roaring through her villette. Once again, she heard the sound of shattering glass and the explosion of gunfire. Tarvez rolled onto her back, seeking reassurance in a silent prayer. She stared into the endless sky and listened to the sounds of the night while she gradually surrendered to her exhaustion. Wind surging in gusts and the scraping of horse hoofs mimicked voices, and soon she heard the crackling of flames and breathed in the acrid odor of burning wood. She saw seven-year-old Darren Halbanian race down the center of the road just as he had three nights earlier. What is burning? Tarvez once again yelled at the boy. Stores, Darren said, bending to the waist to catch his breath. The grocery and the bakery. There are three fires, Tarvez said. What else? The church, the boy was running again. They're burning the apostolic church. Tarvez was awakened by Vartui's soft whimper. She fed her child in the privacy afforded by the pre-dawn darkness. And in the first great traces of morning light, she saw Razmui still sitting against the boulder, staring down the empty road. Uneaten slices of bread and lamb rested in her lap. When they reached the mountain later that day, the gendarmes ordered all carts and donkeys abandoned. 
Possessions that could not be carried would be left behind. Murmurs of protest spread among the women. The carts were filled with bread, beans, dried fruit and grain, and as was the tradition of the Armenian people, the owners had shared the contents with the entire vilayet. The women stuffed their shawls and pockets with as much food as they could hold. Blankets, clothing, and prized family possessions like dishes and carpets were left along the roadside. The donkeys wandered free. The mountain road soon became a narrow trail lined with scraggly brush that scraped and cut the women's legs. The children, somewhere in cloth shoes, cried and complained. Many of the elderly found the climb impossible. Tarvis prayed for God to give them all the strength to continue. And although she knew it was selfish, she also asked that he especially protect her husband, Kivork. At first, Tarvis had been proud of the way Kivork responded to the proclamations nailed to the walls and posts around the Villette. All Armenians and Christians were being relocated, a result of the changing situation in the war, war with Russia. They would return to their homes when it was safe. Tarvis watched from the back of the crowd as her husband stood on the steps of the Apostolic Church, side by side with the priest encouraging the gathering of men to act as one. Although only 24, Kivork had gained a level of respect among the men in the community, and his resonant voice added a sense of certainty to his words. Tarvas could not have been happier the day her parents informed her of their choice for her husband. But when the, Tur when the Turkish authorities came, Kivork was among the first arrested. They arrived as the family was sitting down for their evening meal, two policemen and three soldiers. The tallest of the police officers called out from the doorway, Kivor Artinian. The other men in the Artinian home rose, but Kivor would not acknowledge the intruders. He remained seated on the floor and stared into Tarvez's eyes. Just before the soldiers pinned his arms behind him and pressed his face into the meal he had not yet started, Kivork leaned forward and whispered to his wife, I will return, he said with such uncompromising confidence that she had no choice but to believe him. Thank you. Jerry. Our next guest is Jaja Lin. Jaja shared with us that she has backyard chickens that were raised from chicks. There used to be three, but one of them died of fright from a neighborhood's enthusiastic July 4th fireworks. She recently tried performing a famous experiment on the remaining two, in which you hypnotize chickens using chalk. There are many, there are, whoops, can you hear me?
I think I can talk without it though. There are many YouTube videos on this phenomenon. Oh, thanks. <laughs> okay, we're back on the hypnotizing chickens business. Um, <laughs> there are many YouTube videos on this phenomenon, but she was very disappointed to discover that her chickens were not susceptible to hypnosis. She is the author of The Unpassing, long listed for the Center of Fiction's first novel prize and a New York Times book review editor's choice. Her writing has also appeared in the Paris Review, Glimmer, Glimmer Train, Ziziva, and the New York The New Yorker Online. Please welcome Jaja Lin. Thank you to Kepler's for having me, and thank you all for coming out on such a nice evening. <laughs> um, I'm going to read from the second chapter of my book. Um, I think all you need to know, can you hear me okay? Is that it's set in South Central Alaska in the mid-1980s, um, and the narrator is a 10-year-old boy. Um, and in the first chapter, we find out that his youngest sister has died. Um, and the second chapter sort of shortly follows that. Um, and the family still hasn't really fully grieved yet. Um, and throughout the book, they don't really find a true way to talk about their grief. We used to drive 40 minutes into Anchorage to shop at a Korean grocery. The one vaguely Chinese store was associated with a Chinese mainlander, and mainlanders lacked values. That owner, my mother said, stirred rat meat into the ground pork. When you unwrapped the butcher paper, you might catch a faint scent of urine. Pork, in turn, was passed off as beef with a squirt of red dye. So she shopped at a Korean store no bigger than our garage, while I snuck promising foods into the cart. Purple rice, tofu that came in a squeezable tube, a can of what looked like shiny pretzels, but turned out to be candied lotus root. At the end of the winter, my mother and I made our first visit to the store since Ruby had died. Six weeks had passed. Haley's comet had been visible as a smudge. It was to return bigger and brighter in 2061, but which of us would be alive to see it? Our aliveness was precarious. Divers had found the crew compartment of the Challenger with all of the bodies inside. Soon the wreckage would reveal that four emergency air packs had been activated. Not all of them had died instantaneously. At the grocery store, my mother stood in an aisle and stared at the bottled vinegar. She walked the length of the display, following the spectrum from clear to black, and then stood staring at the blackest vinegar. We left the store without buying a thing. She pulled off the road and parked. In a series of actions that startled me, she hopped a guardrail, scampered across the railroad tracks, and led me down to a huge rock at the beginning of the mud flats. Standing on the rock, towering over the low beach, she said she was trying to listen to it speak, the water, 
but she couldn't hear it from there. The tide was low, the mudflats were vast. Beyond a scrawny, twisted tree was a huge white boulder at the edge of the water. A person was squatting beside it. My heavens, my mother said, and started running. We ran past the tumbling of rocks and stray driftwood and made our way to the boulder. It was a whale, and my first impression of it was its whiteness. It was nearly as long as my father's pickup truck, lying in a puddle. The slump of its body came up to the chest of the squatting man, who stood up. It's still alive, he called to us. Bleached, I thought he said, but of course he must have said beached. The man was short, with a wide, deep chest and arms so muscular they hung away from his sides. He was wearing a neon orange cap with ear flaps, from which a few gray curls escaped. I'd never seen such a funny hat or such a happy color. My mother approached the whale and stopped two yards from its face. I hurried to her. The whale was situated in a crevice of mud and was wriggling its head side to side. I froze in the steady gaze of its small, oily black eye, not so much bigger than a human eye, embedded in a thick ring of skin. The protruding forehead and long mouth gave it a strange expression, a pained smile, as though we'd asked, shouldn't you be in the water? The whale lifted its head and slapped it back down. There was a cool, silty splatter on my arm. Oh, my mother said, delighted. Her sweatpants were streaked. Its flippers pressed against the silt and its flukes fanned the air twice. The heft of its midsection was too great for it to do any more than flex. Here is a whale, I told myself, and then I wondered if it would die. It looked too big to die, too big to vanish during a sudden, silent creak of the world. The man scratched his bristly neck and flicked the brim of his cap up. He said, best she can do is stay still and wait for the tide to come back in. But my mother sprang forward and with a shock, I saw her put her hands on the body of the whale. She ducked her head and shoved, arms locked straight, her loafers gouging tracks into the packed silt. Her feet slid out of her shoes and her socks darkened where they soaked up water. The man belted out a laugh. That's like two tons you're trying to roll. My mother's face hovered beside the blowhole from which a milky foam was leaking. She slipped her shoes back on and walked around to stand before the whale's face. She touched its forehead bump, the same gesture as when she pressed a palm to our sternums to put us to sleep at night. Sleep, she would say, and so quietly we could barely hear, she'd say, wake up again tomorrow. Come here, she said to me now. She lifted my hand to the whale's forehead. It was not especially cold or warm. The skin had a rough, porous texture, and behind the skin its flesh was soft, 
like a ripe peach. I could have left dents with my fingers. I don't know what kind of expression I made, but the man a yard away started laughing again. This kid, he said. I liked the way he laughed, upward, without self-consciousness. He swept an arm back the way we had come. Nothing to be done, he said. We should get out of here. My mother did not move. She was staring hard at the whale. Do you understand what I'm saying? His voice sounded far behind me, and when I felt his hand on my shoulder, I flung it off. Easy. Does your ma speak English? He said. The wind lifted my mother's permed hair into a mane, making her taller and more savage. Do you? He said. English? Hey kid, English? I looked up. What's your name? He asked. Gavin, I said. How would you spell that in English? He said. My mother kicked off her shoes. She peeled off her wet socks, rolling them into a single ball that she stuffed into her coat pocket. It's thirsty, my mother said. The poor thing, it's dry and it's thirsty. The air hurts its skin. She dipped a loafer into the puddle and dribbled water onto the whale's back, spreading the liquid with her hands. I became aware of my own thirst, big and insatiable. I looked past the flats at the glinting water out of reach and the wind felt sharp and dry. The man said, tide's starting to come in, let's go. At the rock, my mother took a seat at the far end. She pulled me up beside her. The man stood for a while, then leaned against the rock then scooted in until he was sitting beside me. He and my mother conversed haltingly about the recent spell of rain and the plummeting oil prices. They fell silent. Then the, then the man said, where are you from? And after my mother had answered, he asked, and what's that like? My mother tilted her head. There, not so many signs, she said. Danger, stay away from tracks. Don't fall off cliff, do not drown. There are no signs like this. The man laughed, and his eyes struggled to expand below his heavy brows as he looked at my mother in a way that made me turn to her too. The curls of her hair had been loosened by wind, and they moved restlessly about her narrow shoulders. In her wool coat, gray sweatpants, and bare feet, she belonged nowhere but this forsaken beach. She paddled her calloused feet on the rock, and the man looked down at her toes. There were threads of dirt beneath her toenails. And do you have a dad? The man asked me. Yes, I said. And do you live with him? He asked. My mother moved her hand very slightly and dug her fingernail into my arm. She said to me in a low voice in Taiwanese, Say no. I looked at the notch her fingernail had left on me. Yes, I said. <laughs> Silence followed, and then my mother said in the same tone, couldn't you just have pretended? Pretend what, I said. That you don't have a father, she said.
up there. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay. Thank you, Annika. Okay, our last guest tonight. About 30 years ago, on a street corner not far from here, our next guest, Rose Whitmore, was selling chickens out of the back of her father's pickup. Chickens is a common theme tonight. Um, <laughs> She'd raised them in her backyard, hundreds of them. They were, it's safe to say, her first true love. Who could have understand the events the loss of those chickens set in motion? A stint playing rugby for the U.S. women's national team, a pilgrimage across Spain, work for a newspaper in Kosovo, and graduate work in New Hampshire. It's been a journey that spans continents and years of searching, but Rose has finally come home to roost. She now lives in San Leandro with her chickens, from whom she will never be parted. Her stories have appeared in the Alaska Quarterly Review, Mid-American Review, and the Missouri Review. Her essays have appeared in The Sun, The Iowa Review, The Colorado Review, and Fourth Genre. She is currently a Jones lecturer at Stanford University and is at work on a novel set during Enver Hodge's communist regime in post-World War II Albania. Please give a welcome to Rose. I want to thank you all for coming. Um, all of my students are here, and I, I told them they wouldn't get extra credit if they came, but <laughs> you all get extra credit. <laughs> um, I wanted to thank Kepler's too. I grew up coming here. Um, I grew up in Belmont and Baroni's and Kepler's was the very cool place to come. And um, it's very nice to come back here and get to share this with everyone. So thank you all for coming and thank you for Kepler's for inviting me. Um, so after World War II and for about 50 years after that, Albania was ruled by a Stalinist acolyte named Anwar Hoxha. And his regime, his regime was incredibly oppressive and the secret police called the Sigurini, had a vicious grip on the country. By the time communism fell in Albania in 1991, it was reported that about one in three people was reporting on each other. Um, and my, my novel follows four characters set during the regime. Tonight, I'm going to read a part of a chapter that follows a character named Marina. And what you need to know about Marina is that she's from a former military family that has fallen out of favor with the regime. Her twin brother, Mikkel, has been missing for many years, possibly laboring in a camp. Her father died in prison, and her mother died shortly after that. Um, but because she's very, very beautiful and very good at languages, the, the regime has decided to give her a job and put her to work, say, over sending her into internal exile or a, or a labor camp. Um, and she comes from a family that has a stained or a bad biography. That, that's what it was called. And this chapter takes place in Tirana, which is the capital of Albania, uh, in 1961, just, just as the regime is falling out of favor with the Soviets, and there is a crucial break with Khrushchev. 
Marina was on the boulevard of the martyrs when she first noticed the man following her. It was always a man. If the regime knew what it was doing, all the cigarimi would be women, and it would be deadly, ruthless. Crimes and betrayals would be snuffed out in an instant. But the regime did not know what it was doing. It was shallow, driven by some crude animal instinct. It was obsessed with its form and reflection, a reflection of Anvar Hoja. It was late July and a cloud of heat had descended on Tirana. The leaves on the chestnuts that lined the boulevard wilted in defeat and all around the city, shades were drawn against the high morning sun that blazed down like an unblinking eye. The streets were still, pressed in, vi in a vice grip of heat that had pushed people indoors. And yet here was this man sauntering behind her, casually observing her. Marina immediately thought of her hostess partner, Leary. Leary with her ambition and her love of the party, the way she furtively studied Marina's face in envy. Leary, who took gifts from the foreign delegations, the airline stewardesses, the wives of the diplomats. Even now, Marina could conjure the warm almond scent of Leary's foreign perfume, a smell that Marina associated with comfort. No one who feared for their safety would wear such a thing. Marina stopped mid-stride by a bench and pretended to rifle through her purse. She saw a cigarette, her last, broken in half, a thing she knew but kept forgetting, so instead of smoking, she pulled out a pencil and dropped it. As she bent to pick it up, she saw he wore military fatigues, low rank but fully dressed despite the heat, a uniform not so different from the one Baba used to wear. She continued to look through her purse, hoping he would continue on, but he did not. He stopped and pulled out a cigarette from his pocket. Sure enough, he was staring, a tactic, perhaps, to be so bold. Marina felt it in her chest, her attention, his attention placing itself among the list of obvious stares she had received, a list she spent her life categorizing, memorizing, a list that had sharpened her, her awareness to a fine tip. After a few moments, she straightened her jacket, smoothed her hair, and set off at a clip toward Hotel Daiti. The military man loped behind her. The sun reflected off the tiles of Skanderbeg Square, her heels slipping on the uneven Chinese marble, and as she crossed the bright expanse, she felt stupid. Of course, Leary was reporting on her. Marina knew the power of a word. It was her job. Leary was too easy with her words, easy in the way people could be when they were protected with party affiliations and connections that would not sever. Marina saw it now as she replayed the military man's gait, how it betrayed the simple fact that he'd never known the feeling of being strapped in a chair for questioning. She cut across the square and headed for the shade of the pines that lined Boulevard Mao. She took pride in her unflappability, steeled against reports and the hard gleam of Sigurimi questions. But this man was different. He was casual, like it was a game. She found the clock tower through the pines. She was due to meet the Italian delegation and their wives in the hotel foyer in 30 minutes. She liked to be early for these events, flaunt her privilege by entering the lobby with its thick red carpets and shining teak furniture. She loved it there, despite the fact that even the straws at the bar were bugged. Sometimes there was air conditioning, and maybe if she was lucky, there were conversations to overhear, snippets, words, phrases, examples of the way real people spoke, Polish and Finnish and Italian. The highest level of mastery she found was in understanding nuance, 
perfect inflection, colloquialisms. She was a magician, really, capable of changing something unseemly in Albania to become a tale of victory in German or Swedish, like a hand smoothing out the wrinkles on a tablecloth. All those foreign people with their mint-flavored chewing gum and feigned awe, it didn't matter what was back home. It didn't matter what was in front of them. All that mattered was the story she told them. These small abilities, the beauty of a translation, this is what pleased the gaze of the regime, a face upon her that felt as hot as the face of the sun. It calmed her now to think that she and her tale were in conversation, like any conversation, which was good because it meant this casual were always more difficult to speak to. Unlike the Italian embassy workers, the scores of them newly invited to Tirana, wanting coffee, always more coffee. She liked the Italian wives enough, impeccably dressed and thoughtful to underhandedly compliment her style. For an Albanian, you are so elegant, they'd say. Still, she liked them, with their bouffant hair and bare tan arms, so elegant while their priggish husbands waved their small hands around. She knew that some immediately recognized the veneer of hardship in her Albanian hostess uniform, the strained elbows of her jacket, her choice of wool in the summer, the nature of her unfashionably modest skirt. Marina would understand these stares too and reply with a smile. She always smiled, even now, as she navigated the crumbling sidewalk in her state-issued heels, she found herself smiling. She turned sharply down Ruga Mislam Shuri, her feet moving so quickly she was almost skipping, her skirt straining against her strides. She could see the foreign cars parked outside the hotel, shimmering in the sun. Her thoughts fluttered through every corner of her apartment. Unless it was planted, they had nothing on her. She regifted everything. The Chinese with their beautiful embroidery, how many handkerchiefs had she refused? How many delicate red silk satchels? East Germans, Poles, the occasional Romanian with that curious but familiar air of Ceausescu. The Cubans with their loud laughs, the freedom that seeped out of them with enough Rocky. She loved the Swedes the most, those sharp shoulders, those big well-fed bodies and wide blue eyes. There was one reporter she'd been assigned, a man, of course, who looked at her the way she looked at pictures of his wife. Stefan, his photographer's click, the eye of admiration. It had been the only time she'd enjoyed someone's gaze, distorted somehow through his lens. But he was gone, packing up his undeveloped photos in that black lens, headed back to Sweden to extol the virtues of communism. How hard the Albanians worked, how fat their lambs, how kind their leader, how beautiful the country. The French gave her perfume sometimes, little vials handed over after her tours with a sad smile. She hated that smile, as though the poverty of the country extended to her inner life. She wasn't proud of the regime, but she was proud to have survived it. So she turned around and gave the French perfume to the Italians and the Italian lipstick to the Cubans. She didn't indulge, she didn't indulge because she was careful, her history weaving itself through every choice she made. Mikel, her twin brother who's missing, <laughs> was behind every choice she made. But then she remembered the letter, the only letter from Mikkel, sewn into the lining of the purse she carried now. She could see their reflections shimmering in the glass doors of the hotel. He was young, sharply dressed, sharply handsome, with a slight bulge in his belly. A royal of hunger moved through her as he approached. The hunger made her bold, 
it made her angry. She'd done everything right. She'd even avoided the black market because what could money buy? It couldn't restore her status and it couldn't bring her brother back. It certainly couldn't buy food unless you knew the right person. All she had were the clever tricks of language and in those glorious spaces she had, in a certain sense, her freedom. The hotel was in sight. Everything was in plain sight. He was closing in. If she was headed for the chair, she would not submit to the fear. Her mother's voice was strong enough to haunt the entire city. Appearances are everything, Marina. She silently rehearsed Italian conjugations as he approached. Simple ones, easy ones, so that her heart could slow. I was, you were. What could they have promised Leary? He was, we were. Could there be news on Mikkel? These people always came with something. How stupid could she be keeping the letter? Her mother was rolling, thrashing violently from her grave in those lonely hills beyond Elbison. He was close to he was close enough to touch her now, if he wanted, and she wished he would just get on with it and ask her in for questioning, place her tactfully in the coolest room in a chair bolted to the floor, smelling of piss, of animal. But no, he was like one of those great snakes she'd heard about from the Chilean attache as he recounted his years in the Amazon. He told her there were snakes as big as children who liked to slowly squeeze their victims to death. He smiled as he said this to her, taking in her reaction. The wide square facade of the hotel was only a few feet away. Excuse me, the military man said, his voice emerging from the heat. As Marina turned to face him, she wondered what language she would have to speak now. Thank you. I just want to say thanks to all of our writers tonight for coming out and sharing your work with us. Thanks to all of you for coming out and enjoying and supporting their work. And thanks to Aggie Z for bringing us all together tonight. Aggie, give us a wave for curating the event. And we really thank you for coming and for supporting Kepler's Literary Foundation. If we could ask the authors to meet us towards the front of the room, we're going to take a group picture. That'd be great. Thank you. Thanks again.